It's our last episode before the holiday. We're taking some days off. We'll be back on Wednesday of next week. And we'll have some stories that are breaking today to talk about then, like Metro Health bonuses and salaries and HB6. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin and Courtney Astolfi. And while there's news that will happen today to talk about next week, there was a lot of news yesterday to talk about right now. Lisa, it's D-Day for what could be a Christmas travel storm we'll be talking about for years. When is the ugly stuff supposed to start and how rare is this big temperature drop that we're expecting? Yeah, we're expecting a temperature drop from 44 degrees late Thursday night to 4 degrees by Friday morning at about 10 a.m. A 40 degree drop in such a short time after December 15th has only occurred six times in Northeast Ohio between 1950 and 2000. A lot of us remember 1977, the Great Blizzard. Uh, There was a high of 44 degrees on Christmas Day and it dropped to a low of 4 degrees on the 26th, the day after Christmas. The last occurrence was December 17th and 18th 2000, when the temperature went from 50 degrees to 8 degrees in that 24-hour period. So right now, Northeast Ohio is under a winter storm warning from 1 a.m. Friday to Saturday at 10 a.m. There is also something I'd never heard of before, a heavy freezing spray warning for Lake Erie vessels and and nearshore residents from Friday at 7 a.m. until 4 p.m. on Sunday. They say that ice could start to accumulate on surfaces at the rate of two centimeters an hour. They're expecting 50 to 15 to 20 foot waves. And yeah, it's just going to get crazy. So let's look at the timeline. This is the latest one. I think they've, the models have coalesced finally, but right now we're going to have rain today and it's going to rain overnight tonight. We're going to have a a low of about 38 to 40 degrees. Now it's going to change to snow about 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. And then we're going to drop to single digits by eight o'clock tomorrow. So this is going to happen real fast. I, I won't be up at that hour, but it it would be fascinating to be standing outside when that temperature shifts like that, because you just don't experience that much in life. I worked in a grocery store when I was a teenager. They had a deep freeze freezer. I guess it would be like walking into that ugly stuff. And they're very worried about the roads because you can't really clear the roads of ice when they ice over that quickly. You mentioned earlier this week, Lisa, that you can't brine the roads when it's raining Mm because the rain just washes it away. And when they freeze this quickly, there's nothing you can really do about it except stay off of them. Right, right. And that's what everybody's saying. All the news outlets, the National Weather Service, they're saying, if you do not have to travel Friday, do not do so. And also, even if you're walking outside, because if you think about when you have a flash freeze, everything turns to ice and then it gets covered with snow. And I have had a knee injury from slipping on black ice. It was hidden under snow. So honestly, stay inside, people, if you can. And then at the airport, they're saying, yeah, it's going to be bad. So the, the the literal quote was pack your patience because you could be stuck there for quite some time. A lot of flights will be canceled, right? Yeah, yes. And already, I mean, it's starting out in the West where they're already being hit. Denver and several other large hubs have already canceled flights. I think we're up to over 1,500 canceled flights so far. 
It, Friday's just going to be a day to hunker down. It'll be I, it'll be interesting to see if this is one of those storms for the ages. Everybody talks about that storm in the 70s. Will this replace it? We'll see. It's today in Ohio. What was retiring Ohio Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor's warning in an interview she did with the Associated Press as she closes out her career? Courtney, she has some strong words. Yes, this was Maureen O'Connor kind of giving her her real thoughts here as she's stepping out the door due to age limits. You know, the, the outgoing Supreme Court Chief Justice was the lone Republican to kind of stand firm against this awful gerrymandering process that we watched unfold. And, and, you know, that triggered a lot of, a lot of backlash from her own party, as we remember. And, and here's specifically what she had to say about those attempts to remove her from office because of where, where she stood on this issue. She said that the people that voiced a need to remove me from office through impeachment really don't have a grasp on our constitution or democracy or checks and balances. And, Unfortunately, they are in the legislature. So she she did come out swinging and 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 she basically said that her advice to the, those folks who pushed back was to please review the constitution, go back to what did she say? What is it? 4th or 5th grade and learn about our institutions. She was not <laughs> pulling any punches here. You're hearing this from a lot of politicians who are retiring, I think, because they remember a time when people did compromise. I have a column that will run this weekend that our readers desperately want to get back to an era where people work collaboratively to get things done instead of vilifying each other. She was vilified for making rulings that she believed were the right thing. That's what a jurist does. But Republicans were calling her saying, what, are you anti-Republican now? And she's like, I'm not Hmm. anything. I'm a judge. I'm ruling on the law. Scary stuff. And it's kind of scary to hear the chief judge issue that kind of warning. Yeah. And, and and she's concerned about kind of what happened in Ohio, what, what that means, like you said, for our, our broader institutions and our and our system of government here. She, you know, she made the point that this country cannot stand if the judiciary is intimidated. And and that was striking, too. I mean, she has seen some stuff, right? We should be listening to what she has to say. I, I also found, you know, got to mention this very interesting comments about why the Ohio Supreme Court did not ultimately hold uh, that redistricting commission in contempt when it kept coming back with maps that defied the Supreme Court's orders. She said the court didn't move forward with holding them in contempt because it would have, it could have created a constitutional crisis. And she said she did not want that happening on her watch. Yeah, although I still wish we would have seen those guys in orange jumpsuits. They defied the Supreme Court. They didn't do what the voters wanted. It really is a bad moment in the history of Ohio, and they're all still in office. It's today in Ohio. The Ohio legislature passed a bill four years ago that changed self-defense cases. Instead of people charged with crimes proving they acted in self-defense, the law presumes they did and puts the onus on prosecutors to prove otherwise. But now the Ohio Supreme Court says not so fast. Lisa, what's the gist of this new ruling? Yeah, this ruling uh, goes back to House Bill 228 that was passed in December of 2018, as you said. Then Governor John Kasich vetoed it, but he was overridden by the GOP supermajority in both houses. And as you said, it, it moved the burden of proof for self-defense cases 
from the from the defendant to prosecutors. So an Ohio Supreme Court opinion on a 2019 Columbus murder case, they ruled that the, the defendants really must provide sufficient proof to back their claims of self-defense. In writing the opinion, Justice Michael Donnelly said, no duty to retreat doesn't mean defendants can refuse to prevent self-defense evidence and the prosecution burden of proof only applies when evidence supports that the accused used force in self-defense. So that's quite a good turnaround. That's actually quite encouraging. So the case in point was a a 2018 incident, Columbus resident uh, Candle Messenger shot his stepbrother Richard Pack and he was convicted of murder, but he claimed that Pack advanced on him and he was worried that he would be disarmed by Pack who knew how to do those kind of things. And so he shot Pack 14 times. And so, uh, you know, this was the, the case law that they used. It is kind of hard to say that you are acting in self-defense if you shoot somebody 14 times. I'll say that right out. I do find this ruling surprising. As bad a law as this was, and that's why John Kasich vetoed it, it is the law. I mean, the, the legislature did say it's no longer on the defendant to issue proof. The Supreme Court seems to be creating its own law here. They're, they're going against what the law says. I'm, I'm not sure I understand what their logic is when the legislature spoke so clearly. Yeah, but I mean, the governor didn't want it, you know, and he couldn't find his, you know, Republican supermajority. So I don't I, know. I, I feel like this was a step in the right direction, quite honestly. No, I look, I it agree. was a bad law. Yeah, it's a bad law, but it is the law. As much as the the Supreme Court doesn't like the laws, they're supposed to rule according to the law. I I did not see, from what I read, what their legal principle was where they could say, yeah, we know what the law says, but the defendant still has to present it. I suspect that the people in the legislature who passed this law will now go back and fortify it. I, I think you're right. Absolutely right. This is a good development. He shot him 14 times and claimed self-defense. There ought to be some onus on this guy to prove why it was self-defense other than he was scared but it does seem to create a conflict. Interesting story. It's, but just, but I did want to I did want to bring this up before we move on. Is that there's a bill, uh, Senate Bill 175, that was passed last month. You know by Dewine and, and the Republicans, which is a similar bill. It's you know it's called a Stand Your Ground bill that would eliminate Ohio's duty to retreat. So we have like another bill that kind of says the same thing. And maybe that's the one that will. We'll fortify it. It's a scary time. I, again, 14 times seems like a hard one to make self-defense claim. It's today in Ohio. A Northeast Ohio native just got what has got to be one of the most challenging jobs on planet Earth. Who is she, Courtney, and what's her new job? Yeah, wow. Uh, Lynn M. Tracy. She's a native of Barberton, and she was confirmed Wednesday by the U.S. Senate as the U.S. Ambassador to Russia heck of a time to be in that mm. post, you know, and and it seemed like the timing of her confirmation by the Senate was part of the political statement and the Ukraine discussion on Capitol Hill yesterday. Zelensky came in and, and met with President Biden and, and there was the address before Congress. And this confirmation of Tracy was part of that whole big political statement, it seems, against 
Putin, you know, the, the Barberton native, she, she got her law degree from the University of Akron, and she has, by what appears to be all accounts, a very impressive career. She she held a diplomatic post in Pakistan when her, her car was sprayed with bullets on her way to work. You know, she she's worked in worked in other diplomatic posts and she has experience with Russian affairs. And, you know, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer basically said that Tracy's going to be tasked with standing up to Putin in this in this uh, very tumultuous time. So she's got a lot on her plate. Yeah, I I would be afraid to go to Russia, even though it's a diplomatic and you're supposed to be respected. Russia is just doing very bad things with people, as we saw in the Griner case. And what possibly can you do as ambassador to Russia to deal with this monstrous situation where they've invaded a neighbor? They're lying to their people about what's going on. They're losing badly. It's very reckless. It's just the diciest job you could have right now. And I wonder how she'll approach it. Yeah. And and she kind of gave us a view of how she is going to approach it during her confirmation hearings last month. You know, during those, she she said one of her, her top priorities in this post is going to be addressing the plight of U.S. citizens who are detained in Russia. And and she's also concerned about the treatment of Russians who are speaking out against Putin's repressive government. So those are some of her focuses out the gate. She, she also pledged during those confirmation hearings to reach out to Russian people throughout society in an attempt to try and promote mutual understanding, to try and help, um, you know, contribute to stable relations. We'll, we'll have to see where it goes, but She's got a tall task ahead of her. All right. It's today in Ohio. The Ohio legislature got serious in the just finished session about dyslexia in state schools. What are they now requiring to identify and help the students afflicted with this reading disability, Lisa? There were a couple bills passed in the legislature to help Ohio school students with dyslexia problems. So one of those things is a requirement that all Ohio students from kindergarten to third grade will be screened for dyslexia beginning in the 2023-24 school year. And then after that, it will be all kindergartners. Um, They will be screened annually after that. And transfer students will also be screened uh, from grades one to six. And also those students from one to six can be screened at either the parent or the teacher's request. Currently, dyslexia screening is left up to each school. Um, so yeah, obviously there are no standards, but they've created uh, with leg- with legislation the Ohio Dyslexia Guidebook, which provides standards for schools to follow in screening and dealing with dyslexic kids. The screening will take about five minutes. Those kids that are flagged will get additional screening and reading intervention programs, and teachers will also have to be trained. So teachers, excluding music and and PE teachers, will undergo 18 hours of professional development for reading intervention, starting with uh, kindergarten and first grade teachers next fall, then grades two and three the next year, and grades four to 12 by 2025-2026. They can learn, you know, these new things online, or schools can hire outside companies to do some training. Yeah, it's a good news story from the Ohio legislature. It crammed a lot of things in in the final weeks of its session, but this is a positive to help a lot of students. This is much more common, I think, than people understand and it the, to be. 
And the interesting thing is, is Mike McGovern, who's on the Ohio Dyslexic Committee, he has a dyslexic son. He says he wants to stress that these are evaluations of dyslexia, not a diagnosis. But, you know, it's striking because they're moving from what they call the whole language way of teaching back to structured literacy. If you remember phonetics, you know, if you're my age, you remember phonetics, which they moved away from. They actually found phonetics is maybe better for kids, especially dyslexic ones. I never understood why they moved away from phonetics. It worked really well for my cohort. We all learned very easily, and it made sense to sound it out. The English language has lots of weird caveats to it, but it seemed effective. So as they moved away from it, I thought, well, I guess maybe there's always a better way. It's interesting they're going back to it. It's Today in Ohio. We have spent years talking about whether Sherwin-Williams would build its new headquarters in Cleveland, the money the governments threw at the company to persuade them to stay in Cleveland, and what their new headquarters building would look like. Now, before the building even opens, they sold most of it. Courtney, what's going on? Yeah, interesting development here with the headquarters. This this involves a deal that went through on Tuesday. Sherwin-Williams sold off 90% of its ownership in the new building that's still under construction to a developer. Um, the Florida-based Benderson Development Company paid $210 million for most of the ownership of the building, and Sherwin-Williams is going to retain 10% ownership. Basically, what's happening here is a sale leaseback agreement where they sell it to this subsidiary of the developer, and then they, they, they pay rent to stay there. And, you know, Sherwin-Williams says it'll still contain, it'll still retain, excuse me, full control of the property. And, and Benderson sees this as a win-win for it, saying it would help grow its por- portfolio. But the paint giant says this has no impact on its unwavering and longstanding commitment to Cleveland and Northeast Ohio. Yeah, I, I'm not enough of a real estate expert to see whether this is bogus or not. It seems odd that they would transfer ownership to somebody else, but we were told yesterday this is actually very common and you shouldn't read anything into it. So I guess we take that at face value. You know, I guess I guess we'll have to see. I, I'm not a, um, up to speed on all the real estate things I'd like to be either, but I was talking to someone who handles county property records yesterday and they kind of described this as a pretty routine thing. Well, and I think Sherwin-Williams described it that way and to Crane's Cleveland business. So I guess we'll have to see. It just seems like an interesting development in this whole headquarters project. But I have a question. So the incentives that the state and the, and the county coughed up, do those go to the new owner now? I don't understand that part. That's a good question. And I was curious about that as well. I don't, I wonder if that's a, a moot question because it's still getting Sherwin-Williams to stay in Cleveland, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. although so the know. money was for the building, the money was right. to help them put the building up. I, I we we will have to find that out, Lisa. It's a great question, and you are listening to today in Ohio. Which Cleveland suburb is the richest? And what I mean is, which suburb has the highest median family income, according to the Census Bureau? And it'll be no surprise which one ranks last. Lisa. Yeah, this was U.S. Census Bureau data for median family income, not household income, from 2017 to 2021. Number one in the state, 
is Pepper Pike at $220,285,000 a year in uh, income. And they actually went up 18% from 2016. So Pepper Pike's getting richer. Number two is New Albany outside of Columbus, which is where the Intel plant is being built. They came in at just over 215 thousand four hundred dollars indian hill number three in the cincinnati area two hundred and fourteen thousand dollars number seven was hudson at 165 648 but they were number two in family income in the cleveland akron area dead last yeah i i I hate to say it but yes east cleveland with a median family income of thirty four thousand two hundred and seventy eight dollars cleveland was sixth from last at 42,107. Lindhurst was second to last at 37,379. And of course, I had to look at where I lived. And I was surprised, Chris, because Lindhurst, the median uh, family income is over $100,600. And Cleveland Heights came in where you live at only 85,701. That kind of surprised me. Yeah. I, my biggest surprise, I thought Hunting Valley would top this. That's the very, oh, very, very mm-hmm. expensive suburb or Bratnaw where it seems like everybody's a millionaire, but maybe they're just independently wealthy and they don't really have income in the way that the census is measuring it. I just didn't see a, a couple of those east side, very hoity-toity suburbs not making the <laughs> list and Hudson and Pepper Pike being high, but they have working people in those towns. And so maybe that's why interesting stuff. Check out the rankings. They're on Cleveland.com. Courtney, you sat down this week with Justin Bibb to talk about his first year as Cleveland mayor and what's ahead in his second year without giving away the store. How about a preview of some highlights for the story you're going to publish next week? Yeah, happy to do so. It was a a good conversation with mayor Bibb a little earlier this week, um, outside the mayor's office and, you know, we were really kind of talking about what he's accomplished in his first years, his first in public office, big year for that, right? And that's what voters wanted was some was a, a, a new person kind of at City Hall. And, you know, accomplishment wise, I mean, I think it it bears noting that the um, the police commission, the, the new body that was created by the passage of issue 24, is seated. You know, I assume supporters would have liked that to have happened a little bit quicker this year, but now all are sworn in and they are ready to begin their work in earnest in the next year. And that was obviously a big thing tied to Bib. He campaigned on it. They both got approved by voters kind of in the same, feels like the same push. So that's been interesting. You know, he, he got through the police contract, delivering big raises to police, 11% over three years, that the public safety and police aspect of things has been a big piece of his mayorship. Um, you know, and then a lot of this year, I think at city hall is revolved around the spending of ARPA dollars. And the way, the way Bib talked about that was he, he sees that money as, as going a long way on helping him achieve his, his policy areas. What struck me was his willingness to talk about, kind of the education he's needed to undergo at City Hall this year, what he described as the levers, which levers to pull to, to affect which change and and get his policy priorities done. And, and I like that he talked about that because he campaigned on the slogan of Cleveland can't wait. And he said he always has this, he wants to jump in and just start getting stuff done. But what he's learned at City Hall is that sometimes when you move too fast, you, you know, you 
you mess up or you don't get the outcome quite that you want. And in the new year, he said he's really focused on maybe taking that input a little bit better on the front end to better inform policies instead of going with his instincts, which is just to jump right in. I also think it's interesting to hear, you know, there's some things he promised on the campaign trail that we haven't really started scratching yet in his in his first year in office. But one of those was um, the children's cabinet. He really wants to set up a structure in city government to focus on how to give Cleveland kids the best foundation in life and set them up for healthy, happy futures. And it sounds like that's going to launch in the first half of next year. So I'm interested to see how that starts to impact policy as well. Yeah, part of the thing for a new mayor, it's not just what you accomplish, it's how much you screw up. And really, he had stumbles, but he didn't have a lot of big ones. The worst probably was his handling of the Eric Gordon resignation. Uh, he did promise to modernize City Hall, and that is the monumental challenge for any mayor of Cleveland. Anybody that deals with City Hall hates it because there's no one-stop shopping. You have to go to a lot of different places to get things done. I do hear he has very much streamlined things like the movie permit aspect that used to be that you'd have to go to 18 stops, and now people seeking to uh, get movies shot in Cleveland, it's one stop. Bradford Davy, the, the chief of staff now, really helped set that up. But he's got to do that overall. People who want to build in Cleveland need an easy way to get through. And Courtney, you spend time in City Hall. They're not the hardest workers in City Hall. And I wonder how he's going to get to that. Yeah, the, the modernizing City Hall conversation was a very interesting part of the discussion. You know, he, he just talked about some simple changes that have already been made. So like when he came into office, he said different departments were running on different versions of, of Windows and they couldn't transfer documents to each other. Just just basic <laughs> stuff like that. He said he's got everybody on Office 365 now. So this is going to be a huge effort that, that, that if you really want to modernize City Hall, there is just so much work to do. I mean, you could probably spend decades doing stuff. But he did say that and he's been laying the groundwork for this this year, but he said in 2023 is when we're really going to see big improvements to the 311 system, and um, there's going to be a new city website. So all these bits and pieces, and, and you know, he also pointed out that modernizing City Hall isn't just updating the technology, doing away with paper, and, and some of those things. He said it's kind of changing the way of, of, of thinking, like the West Side Market debate. He said that's modernizing City Hall. It's it's trying to put an asset to work and and update how how things are administered, not just kind of the technological pieces that that might come to mind first in that conversation. All right. We'll look for your story next week and we'll be watching the mayor in 2023. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's end this lead into the holiday on a high note with fighting words. What fun way did some of Cleveland's top professional athletes work with children to boost the participation in the boys and girls clubs, Lisa? 
Yeah, this is really fun. This is a fundraising effort to double the number of children that are served by the Northeast Ohio Boys and Girls Clubs by 2025. So the the centerpiece of this effort is a Cleveland fight song called The Land. And several Cleveland athletes were game and sang along, including Miles Garrett and Kareem Hunt from the Browns, Darius Garland from the Cavs, and uh, Olympic pole vaulter and gold medalist uh, Katie Nagia. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. But both Katie and um, Kareem Hunt are alumni of the Boys and Girls Club, so they know what it can do for young people. And and these are after-school programs that they create so kids can have a place to go, you know, after school where they can, you know, stay out of trouble. And this, uh, the main vocals, though, are handled by a Chagrin Falls female rapper named Britt Fox and an Avon Lake musician, Chad Hoffman. But, but Miles and Darius and Kareem and Katie all chime in. It's really cute. You have to see the video. Um, we have linked on our story. Uh, Boys and Girls Club CEO Alan Smith says their mission is to be a haven for after school hours for people, you know, age six to 18, but they can only serve about one tenth of the children who need this program. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time working with the Boys and Girls Club on various projects, including the Greater Cleveland, and they provide such a vital service. It was nice to see the athletes helping out here in such a engaging fun way good stuff it's yeah, on cleveland.com yep yep no i was gonna say it's you know and it's kind of it's kind of a wrap you know but it's got flow as the kids say and it's really cute you know just to see that you know that and obviously the athletes are really enjoying being part of it all right it's today in ohio that wraps it up leading into the holiday thanks lisa thanks courtney thanks to everybody who listens we hope everybody has a great holiday and we will be back on wednesday <laughs>